All right, First Samuel 3. So uh, recap, Samuel, super important figure in the Old Testament. He's a pivotal figure. He's kind of a bridge between this loose confederation of tribes and the monarchy. We've been looking at him for the last couple of weeks. A lot of supernatural circumstances surrounding his birth that really highlight him as a key figure in what God is doing uh, in, in Israel. Uh, his wife, or excuse me, his mother Hannah was barren for a number of years. She prays to the Lord and says, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll dedicate him to you all the days of her life. God hears her prayer. She does uh, conceive. She gives birth to Samuel. When he's three or four years old, she takes him to the tent of meeting that's in Shiloh. That's, your Bible may call it the tabernacle. It's the precursor to the temple. It's this this, it, it's portable. It's a, a portable place uh, where God dwells. It's the Ark of the Covenant is in that tabernacle, and that's where God dwells. And so that's where Hannah takes Samuel to dedicate him to the Lord. And he's under the care of Eli, um, who is, he's retired at this point. Priests had to retire at 50, but he's kind of supervising everything. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are really the active priests. And so we looked last week at how wicked those guys were. Samuel, the technical phrase is ministers before the Lord, really serving as an assistant to the priests in worship. There's a lot of activity, lots of sacrificing, lots of cleaning up to do, and Samuel is helping with all of that. And then we've got these wicked sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas who are abusing the offerings that are brought. God has set aside certain portions of the animals for the priests. They're not eating their portion. They're not. They're, they're taking what they want before God gets what's what what is His. It's what they're doing is wicked and corrupt. And we saw this again. This contrast between the two. And we closed last week with a prophet comes to Eli and says, "You're done. Everybody in your house is done. God's finished with you. You're judged because of all of the sin that has happened." Under your watch. And that's where we'll pick up chapter 3, verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. We'll pause there. So, boy, probably 12 years old. So, you kind of think about that. Sixth grade, 7th grade. That's, that's the age. Uh, he's been, again, in the temple for 8 or 9 years at this point, and the, the spiritual climate that he's in is, is desolate in a lot of ways. Judges is the book right before 1 Samuel chronologically, and it covers about 300 years of history. And in those 300 years, there's two prophets. That's it. Two out of 300 years, there's five revelations in the whole book of Judges. Five times where God speaks clearly to his people over a 300-year period. It's the word of the Lord is rare. And it's, there's this vicious cycle going on in Judges. Judges is described as a time where everyone did as they saw fit. So if you're doing as you see fit, then you're not seeking the Lord because you're doing what you want. Proverbs 29:18 says, without revelation, people cast off restraint. So you have people doing as they see fit, not seeking the Lord. So there is no revelation. And with revelation, without revelation, people cast off restraint, which means they're going to continue to do as they see fit, which means they're going to, there's going to, they're going to continue, excuse me, to not be revelation, and they're going to continue to cast off restraint. It just creates this vicious downward spiral, if you like that. And in the midst of that, God sends Samuel. Again, you have supernatural circumstances surrounding his birth to, to highlight there's something about this one. And so in the midst of that spiritual desert... Samuel is born and Samuel is called as a prophet. Verse 2. One night, Eli, 
whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time, the Lord called Samuel and Samuel got up, to, got up, went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. So physical description that depicts a spiritual reality. Eli's lying in his usual place and he doesn't see very well. So this is a rendering of the tabernacle. That purple circle is the lamp. There's a lamp stand had seven candles on it and it had to stay lit all through the night. So this is in the middle of the night. The candle has not yet gone out or the lamp has not gone out. So that means it's not daytime yet. And so this place between that purplish curtain and that bluish purplish curtain that's called the holy place and that's where Samuel was sleeping he was lying down there on the back side of that curtain you see that rectangle that's the ark of the covenant that's the most holy place or the holy of holies one person could enter into that room one time a year that was on the day of atonement and uh, if anyone else entered they died and sometimes they, they said they tied a rope around the high priest's ankle because if he went in there and he messed up and he died, they had to pull him out because nobody could go in and get him or they were going to die, too. So that's the presence of the Lord. That's the Ark of the Covenant represents where God lives kind of in quotes on the earth. And Samuel is sleeping here. And then you contrast that with Eli, whose eyes are about to he doesn't see very well. And we would say that's true physically and spiritually. Hannah's praying. He thinks she's drunk. Uh, he lets his sons wreak havoc on, in, uh, in worship in the temple. He knows what they're do- He knows that his sons are sleeping with women who are serving at the temple. He doesn't do anything about it. And it takes him three times before he recognizes that God is speaking to Samuel. He's the, the spiritual leader, the spiritual authority in the whole nation. He doesn't even recognize the voice of God. He can't see. And he's sleeping in his usual place, wherever that is. And we see Samuel, this boy of 12, in the holy place, as close as he can get to the presence of God without dying. That's where Samuel's sleeping as a 12-year-old boy. Contrast with the priest who's in his usual place somewhere else. Implication, not near the presence of God. And so from that place, most likely people say it's probably from the ark that God is calling out to Samuel. Probably normal for Samuel to hear Eli. Eli's, he's, he's overweight. He can't see. He's old, and so he probably needs a lot of help. And so it's probably normal for him, and that was part of Samuel's job. He was an assistant. And so it was probably normal for Eli to call to Samuel and for Samuel to go and help him. And so he hears someone calling his name, and he assumes it's Eli. And he goes, says, what do you want? And Eli says, it's not me. Go lay down. And it happens again. And he, what do you want? It's not me. Go lay down. And you see this interesting statement. Samuel doesn't know the Lord at this point. He's been ministering to the Lord for several years, but he doesn't know him personally. He doesn't know him relationally. God's never spoken to Samuel before, so he doesn't recognize his voice. He goes back a third time 
God calls to Samuel. Samuel goes to Eli. What do you want? Eli finally clues in. It's God speaking to you. Next time, say this. Speak because I'm listening. Your servant is listening. And so this fourth time, the Bible says God stood near. Think about that. God came and stood near Samuel. The previous three, he may be called out maybe from behind the curtain or something like that. And now he comes near and stands next to Samuel, whatever that means. Some people say that may have been Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't come into existence in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when he was born to Joseph and Mary. He's God. He's always existed. He just didn't get skin until he was born to Mary and Joseph. And so maybe that was Jesus in this pre-incarnate form showing up and speaking, standing near Samuel. It shows, I think, the, uh, the commitment that God has to making sure people hear his voice and know him personally. And he calls out this fourth time. And Samuel says, speak, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready to listen. And so here's the content of what God says to Samuel. Keep in mind, he's a 12-year-old boy. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. So what God says to Samuel is I'm going to tell you something that's going to shock everyone because of what I'm going to do to the leading spiritual family in Israel. If you remember last week, a prophet comes to Eli and lays all of this out in detail. Here's what's going to happen. Your sons are going to die on the same day. And that's a sign that everything I'm saying to you is true. We'll see that happen next week. The first word to Samuel is similar. Samuel didn't know what was spoken to Eli. If God spoke a word like that to you, you probably wouldn't share share it with anybody either. Eli didn't go around telling everybody, hey, God's done with me. He's going to wipe out me. He's going to wipe out all my descendants. He's finished with us. So the fact that Samuel goes to him, or the fact that this is the word that that God gives to Samuel, it's going to confirm to Eli that Samuel is, in fact, a prophet. But again, he's a 12-year-old boy, and this is what he's hearing. This this man who's taken care of you for the last eight or nine years, we're done with him. He's going to be judged forever. Why? That's a harsh word, forever. Why? Because there was sin that his sons were committing, and he knew about it. We looked at that last week. People were coming to Eli and saying, your sons are sleeping with the women who are working in the temple. Eli was not um, physically or actually corrupting worship, but he was eating the food that his sons were taking that they shouldn't have taken. He was eating the fat from these animals that they were not allowed to eat. They were only supposed to eat the, the breast and the right thigh. They were eating other parts of the animals, and Eli was as well. He was participating fully in what his sons were doing, although he was not physically taking the meat from the worshipers. And he knew, and he he didn't do anything. What God says is, is your sons have blasphemed. That means to make light of. To give honor is, uh, is to give weight, what that means literally. And blaspheme literally means make light. So rather than giving God weight and honor, they're making light of his, of God, through the way they're treating worship. And these sacrifices for year after year after year. And Eli knows and he doesn't restrain them. He doesn't discipline his sons. And so God says, we're we're done. You're going to be, there there is no way to atone for this. You're going to be punished forever. Numbers 15 says this. 
If anyone, anyone who sins defiantly, and that word literally means with a high hand. So you can think about slapping God in the face. That's what that means. Anyone who sins in that way, whether native born or alien, those people blaspheme the Lord. And that person must be cut off from his people. Cut off can either mean excommunicated all the way up to being stoned. Because he's despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, that person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. So what God is saying is, if you sin deliberately, intentionally, persistently, it doesn't matter how many animals you bring. It's not going to make up for it. Those of you who are parents, this is when your kid, when you tell your kid what to do and they say, oh, oh yeah, watch me. How does that make you feel? You're about to wring somebody's neck. when they, You've told them. And they look you in the eye and say, watch me. That's what God is. That's the type of sin God is talking about in this passage. He's talking about, again, slapping God in the face. It's deliberate. It's intentional. It's persistent. It's you know it's wrong and you're doing it anyway. Watch me, God. And that's what Hophni and Phinehas and Eli have been doing for year after year after year. Very similar sentiment in Hebrews 10, New Testament. If we deliberately keep on sinning. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. What God is saying here in Numbers and in Hebrews, this is not a business transaction. This is relational. The reason we sacrifice these animals in the Old Testament is to symbolize that relationship has been restored. Your sin caused a breach or a break in relationship. And when you sacrifice the bull or the goat or the sheep, what that's saying is the debt has been paid. And so me and God can relate to one another again. If you're sinning in a high handed way, if you're sinning defiantly, if you're slapping God in the face, what that says is you're not interested in relationship. So you can't think that you can act that way and go sacrifice a bull and everything's going to be okay. New Testament, you can't act that way. You can't sin defiantly and then say, God, forgive me and think everything's going to be okay. God is looking for repentance and you can repent until your last breath, until your final breath. You can repent a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God never despises. That's what he's always looking for. What he's not looking for is a sacrifice of animals or somebody perfunctorily praying a prayer. If those things are not reflective of your heart, then relationship has not been reestablished, not because of God, but because of us. It's not a business transaction. It's a relationship. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. And what God is saying here, Eli, because you have persistently neglected your role as a father and persistently engaged in this perversion of worship. Hophni and Phinehas, because you have done this year after year after year after year after year, there is no sacrifice for you left. For you, you've perverted the sacrifice. The thing that I gave y'all to symbolize reconciliation, you've blown it. You've perverted it. You've corrupted it. There's nothing left for you. And the same thing, and, and hear this with reverence, is, is true for us. You can't continue to run and run and run and run away forever. You can't sin in whatever ways that you want and just feel like, oh, it's okay. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. It doesn't, God cannot be mocked. Repentance, he always responds to. Again, you can repent of anything up until your dying breath. And God will respond. As he desires to be reconciled. 
but he can't be mocked. We can't live defiantly before him and presume upon his grace. You're not interested in relationship with him, then the words don't matter. He's looking at hearts, not just at what we say. Verse 15, Samuel lay down until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli. Of course he was. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Here I am, Samuel answered. What is it that God said to you? Eli asked, don't hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. That's just a, uh, their way of saying, tell me the truth. So Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him. Then Eli said, he's the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's like saying from the north to the south, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all of Israel. So, Eli, to his credit, says, Samuel, tell me what God said. And Samuel, of course, again, he's a 12-year-old boy. This guy's been taking care of him for eight or nine years. He is the spiritual authority in Israel. He is the most powerful man in their nation, Eli is, at this moment, because he controls the temple. There is no supreme political ruler at this point. There's no king. There's no president. There's no prime minister. There's none of that. Eli and his family, they are the most powerful family in Israel. And this 12-year-old boy has this word, you're going to be judged forever. He doesn't know that Eli's already heard that. Can you imagine? So, of course, he's scared. Eli, to his credit, says, tell me the truth. Tell me everything God says. And Samuel tells him. And Eli knows that lines up perfectly with what God said to him earlier through this, through this other prophet. So he knows Samuel has heard from the Lord. He is a prophet. Eli, again, to his credit, accepts what this accepts this judgment from the Lord. And then there's this kind of footnote or, or summary statement that Samuel is now attested as a prophet. He's the first national prophet since Moses, 400 and something years before. There's not been a prophet to the nation. There have been other prophets, but they've been more localized. Samuel functions as a prophet for the whole nation. Dan to Beersheba, north to the south, everyone recognizes that God has called Samuel to be a prophet. And we'll see how his ministry plays out in the weeks uh, to come. A couple of things for us. One thing from Eli. One thing from Samuel. Eli was judged not because his children were corrupt and wicked and disobedient. Eli was judged because he didn't do anything about it. He wasn't judged for their behavior. He was judged for his. Because he didn't function as a father. He did not discipline his kids. He did nothing to try to restrain his kids. They could have run through the stop sign. They could have ignored him. They could have rejected him. All he did was at the very end of his life, he gave one rebuke. And at that point, it was too little, too late. For years, he let them basically do whatever they wanted. There's a place in the Old Testament that says men uh, moved into the priesthood when they turned 25. And another place says they moved into the priesthood when they turned 30. And so what the rabbi said is in that five-year gap between 25 and 30, these guys were apprenticed. So Eli would have apprenticed Hophni and Phinehas. He would have taught them as the high priest, here's what you do. So either he taught them poorly or he taught them well and they rejected his teaching. But either way, he did nothing to curb their 
behavior. And that's what they're be- that is what he is being judged for. His sons are judged for their own wickedness. Eli's judged for his laziness and his participation in their corruption. Doesn't do anything about it. One word to parents. If you're not yet a parent or you're not a parent, just bear with me. I'll have something for everybody at the end. But one word to parents. Discipline absolutely is a part of what it means to be a parent. A great passage. I would say the best passage in the Bible on discipline is Hebrews 12. You can go read it. It's about seven or eight verses. Hebrews 12, like four to 11, somewhere in there. And God, in that in that section, the writer of Hebrews is assuming parents discipline their kids and drawing a parallel between the way God disciplines us. And as you read about the way God disciplines us, it informs the way you as a parent should discipline your children. One is when we hear the word discipline, we often think punishment. That's not actually what the word means. You can see what the word means to provide instruction with the goal of forming proper habits of behavior. That's what it means to discipline. Now, in Hebrews, it does say it's not pleasant. The context is people suffering. Discipline is not pleasant at the time, for sure. But the heart of it is not punitive. It's positive. It's rooted in love. God says discipline is actually a mark of adoption. If you're not being disciplined, then you're not a legitimate child. And so as parents, part of what we do is discipline our children. Why? Because we love them. Definitely not to show that we're the boss. And our heart for them is positive, not punitive. Your uh, average life expectancy in the United States is 79 years. If we're lucky, our kids leave when they're 18. 25% of their life is under your roof. 75% is not. To discipline them is to prepare them for that 75%. That's what you're doing. You're giving them whatever it is that you have so that that 75% of their life, when they're not under your roof, when they're not under your authority, when you can't fix it for them, that they can live right. And that doesn't mean that they know which fork to eat use a, for a salad. Like That's okay, too. But what we're talking about here is character, conforming people into the image of Jesus. Are you giving them what they need to stand on, again, when they're not under your roof, to, to live right as God defines that? That's good. Is that, going, is that where you're standing as... A parent. There's only two commands that I found explicitly and directly to parents in the New Testament. You may find some more. Children are people. And so everything the, the, the Bible says about how we treat people, that's how you treat your kids. You love them. You forgive them. You serve them. You honor them. All of those things because children are people also. They're just smaller. But they all of the same uh, dynamics relationally apply. But there's two specific commands that I found. Again, you may find some others, and they're both negatives. And I think they're both meant to draw a circle around what it means to discipline. One is in Ephesians 6, and one's in Colossians 3. That's my, that's my paraphrase. Don't rile them up and don't crush them. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, it's parents. Do not exasperate your children, which means cause them to become provoked or angry. Instead, bring them up in the training... Or discipline from Hebrews 12 and instruction of the Lord. Don't exasperate your kids. Don't rile them up. Don't stir them up. There's a thousand ways you can do that. And many of them are unique to your child. You need to know them well enough to know what, what are you pushing their buttons? Stop. Stop. Don't push their buttons. At some point, your kids are old enough and you can ask them, what do I do that drives you crazy? 
If they say, make me come home at 10 o'clock, then you can say that that one's not up for grabs. If they say, make me go to school, you can say that one's not on the table either. There are absolutely limits that you have to impose as a parent. But again, it's from a heart that's for them, not against them. But are you pushing their buttons around things that there's no reason to do so? Being overprotective, that is pushing your kids' buttons. You will exasperate them if you hover in their life. Step back. Give them some space. If you are constantly riding your children and you never encourage them, you will exasperate them. I played soccer over here at Marietta. We used to play at the it's the football stadium now. It's before they had the new school. And there was a guy I played with from second grade on up, and he was actually good. And his dad had one of those really booming voices, and he would yell at him from the sidelines all growing up. And he yelled at him when we played, and he called him Timmy, and he would yell from the sidelines and we could, or from the stands, and we could hear him. If you've ever been to Marietta, the stands are kind of like this, and your voices carry anyway. And I, I remember this game. I think we were juniors. And we were playing, and, and he, Tim, Timmy, maybe, I, I can't remember what he did. Messed up on some level. He's a good player, so I'm sure it was minor. And his dad yells from the sidelines, or from the stands, Timmy, da-da-da-da-da. And he stops in the middle of the game, and he looks up at the stands, and he yells at his dad and says, If you don't shut up, I'm walking off the field. That's exasperating your children. And at some point, they snap. He rode him. He rode him. And at some point, they're done. your kids are done. Don't exasperate them. Don't push their buttons. There's no reason to do that. God doesn't do that to you. Don't do that to them. Again, it's not about letting them have everything that they want at all. But there's a recognition that said, we don't, we don't have to do this. My personality, I, I don't necessarily plan things very far in advance. One of my children loves, she loves the schedule and she plans her time and, and she has everything laid out. She's incredibly responsible. And when I show up and say, hey, let's go do this, that exasperates her. If it's the last minute because she's already planned her day. Like that's, that's on me, that's not on her. And so I've got to figure out how do I communicate to her far enough in advance that it's a, she can, she can hear what I'm saying and she can be included and it doesn't stress her out. And, That's what I'm, don't exasperate them. Don't embitter them. That's Colossians 3. I say don't crush them. Don't embitter your children. That's causing them to react as you would to someone challenging them. Don't hear challenge in a good way. Hear challenge as uh, asking them to compete. I win, you lose. Or they will become discouraged. They lose heart or they lose motivation. Don't do that to your kids. Constantly moving the goalposts. That crushes your kids. It's this behavior is OK on Monday and then you had a bad day. And so suddenly that behavior is not OK on Wednesday. That causes your kids to lose heart. How do they win if you're constantly moving the goalposts, focusing on too many things at once? One thing at a time, one thing at a time. Let at, let your kids act their age. Five year olds, they're five, like they make messes. They throw things on the ground. They throw they, they get upset like. That's part of being five. Don't expect them to act like they're 25 when they're five. That can crush your children because they feel like they can never win. Your standards are, in, are they're too high. You're expecting things from them that are not developmentally appropriate. That embitters your children. It causes them to lose heart, lose motivation because they feel like they can never please you or they can never win. Don't do that. Don't parent as if your children are your resume. They are not at all. 
I don't know if they're a reflection on you, but I guarantee that if you think they're a reflection on you, it will not help you as a parent at all. It will cause you to drive your children in ways that are not healthy for them. It will cause you to expect things of them that they're just, they're just not right. You will embitter them and you will exasperate them. And at some point, they may tell you to shut up and get out of their life. Don't parent out of fear of that for sure. There's a, there's a, there are lots of ways of approaching your children that don't push their buttons and that don't them. Don't set up dynamics in your home where you win and they lose. I talk to young parents all the time and they talk about establishing control and showing who's boss. And I want to say, like, your kid can't even open the door. Is it really a question about who's the boss? Is there, who thinks your kid's the boss? Who, I don't understand that at all. That may be a parenting philosophy. It's a terrible one if it is. I don't get it. I don't. Find a place in the Bible where God says, hey, let me show you on the boss. Maybe in Job. Just a little bit. He pulls the curtain back and says, Job, let me show you something. There's no reason for that. Of course you're the boss. You win. You can beat them in arm wrestling and ping pong and spelling. You win at everything. You do not have to go one-on-one with them. That embitters them. It exasperates them. You don't have to prove you're the boss. If you're doing that, honestly, that's a you issue. That's not a them issue. You need to get to a place where you're secure enough in your role as a father or a mother that you don't have to lord that over your children. Don't set up those dynamics in your home. They're not, they're not healthy. People have asked me before, what's your discipline philosophy? And mine is whatever works. That's it. I'm not consistent, ever. Whatever works. I have four kids. Different things work on different ones at different times. The goal is not to say I got through and was consistent with everybody across the board. The goal is, did I train them? Did I give them whatever I had so that for the 75% of their life that they're not under my roof, that they've got a foundation to make good decisions, to follow Jesus? Do they know that God loves them and that he speaks to them? Like that, that's what we're going for here. It's not whether or not they always make it to dinner without dirt stains on their pants or whether they get all A's or whether what their stats are on the field. You know all that. Parent accordingly. Don't rile them up and don't crush them. That's what we learned from Eli, from Samuel. This is for everyone. God still speaks today. Out of everything we talk about at Stonebridge, this is the one that catches people the most. This is the place where people have the the hardest time. Is saying that God still speaks today. People would say, yes, he spoke. But when now that we have a Bible, God doesn't speak anymore. Everything we need is in the Bible. And that's, that's true up to a point. Everything you need to know about God, you can find in the Bible. It's a full and complete revelation of who he is. Everything that you need to know about salvation, you can find in the Bible. It's a full and complete revelation of what it means to be reconciled to God. There's also the Bible gives at least the broad strokes of where God is taking creation and how we cooperate with what he's doing in our world. Many of you are married. You most likely did not find the name of your wife in the Bible. Many of you have moved at some point in your life. You didn't find the city you were going to move to in the Bible. You've gone to college. Your college wasn't in the Bible. Auburn people think theirs is. It's not. It's not in there. Many of you changed careers. 
Your major was not in the Bible. Your field is not in the Bible. All of these major life decisions, your choices are either you're making them on your own or God speaks outside of the Bible. If God wrote down everything you needed to know, there'd be 120 billion books because that's how many people have ever lived. And each one of them would be how many pages long to cover your entire life. You couldn't read it fast enough to keep up. So what he's done is way more efficient. He's given us his word, which reveals who he is, how we're reconciled to him and where he's taken history. And then he's put his spirit within us to guide us on everything else. Just two passages from the New Testament, and I can give you way more. John 10, Jesus says, his sheep will follow him because they know his voice. If you're a Christian, you're one of his sheep. You know his voice. You may not know that you know it, but you know it. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Galatians 5, Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The fundamental invitation of Jesus is to follow him. He does. He's not physically here. The disciples could see where he was going and walk after him. We can't. He's given us his spirit. That's how we follow him is by following the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. I promise you, it does not devalue the Bible at all to say God speaks today. No one is saying God speaks with the same level of authority that he did. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that your decision to marry your spouse should be enshrined and and marked somewhere. That's not it at all. This revelation is final and complete for what it is. And for what it's not, God has put his spirit, that is him, God himself, dwelling within us. That's why Jesus can say, it's for your good that I go. Because when I go, I'll give you someone The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he'll take up residence within you. He will guide you into all truth. That's what he does. You can hear his voice. If you don't believe me, please come and grab me. We've got to talk through that. You need to get to a place where you recognize God speaks to you. Or I don't know how you make it. I don't know how you make the level, the number of decisions that are as complex as the decisions you are facing. You're making a pro-con list. You're throwing a dart at a dart. Like, what are you doing? I don't get it at all. How people who say, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but he doesn't speak today. How do you decide who to hire or where to apply or what you should? How do you decide how you're exasperating your kids? It's not in there. He says, don't do it. He doesn't tell you what's exasperating your 12-year-old. How do you know that? I don't get it. Again, don't hear that as, I'm not coming down on you. I'm saying, please, recognize the resource that's available. God himself living within you, who wants to lead you and guide you and direct you on a daily basis. For most of us, we're just not listening. So like Samuel, just ask, God, speak. I'm listening to you today. I'm listening. Speak to me. How does that play out? Some people see pictures when they pray and ask God to speak, like a, like a photograph or An image. It's not me. I tend to hear words. I don't hear them with my ears. Samuel heard with his ears. I don't know anybody who hears God audibly. And I definitely don't know anyone who hears him audibly on a regular basis. Maybe occasionally for a few. When we say hear God, it's all internal. You're hearing with your heart, not with your ears. I think thoughts that are smarter than me. Like, oh, I'm reminded of something that I've forgotten. Oh, that's the Lord. 
And over time, you learn to recognize his voice. His sheep know his voice. God, I'm, I'm here. Speak to me. You may see a picture. You may think a thought. You may feel something. Some people have urgings or promptings. Some people call it, they, they talk about their gut. If you're a Christian, it's not your gut. It's the Holy Spirit. And you respond to those promptings and those urgings. It's rarely in my life, I've been a Christian for 30 years. It's never been overwhelming, ever. I can ignore everything God's ever led me to do. Every single bit of it. it to Elijah, God says, it's, not, it's a gentle whisper. It's not a violent wind. It's not a fire. It's not an earthquake. It's a gentle whisper you can ignore. Some people think when God speaks, it's going to be overwhelming. I won't be able to deny it. I'm going to have, you know, there's going to be a song in the background and the clouds are going to part. And no, what God is looking for is faith. He's looking for people to trust him. So you can always deny. You can always reject. What he wants to know is, do you trust me enough to step out on the thought, on the picture, on the prompting? And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't at all. Sometimes it's terrible. What God is looking for, again, in the kingdom, obedience to success. What he's looking for is, are you willing to take a step? Are you willing to express trust? Never, in my experience, is it undeniable and overwhelming. I can always reject. I can always rationalize. I can always justify. And I can always choose a different path. God doesn't force In a particular direction. But you need to know. He speaks to you. As soon as you say yes to him. If you're 6. Or 86. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. And you can hear his voice. There is not some point where you graduate. And God starts speaking to you. As soon as you say yes. You become a Christian. The Holy Spirit takes up residence with you. And he will lead you. Parents, if your children are Christians, God speaks to them. And you need to take that into account as you're thinking about where all of this is going. The older your kids get, as they begin to make some of their own decisions, if they're Christians, the Holy Spirit lives within them, and he very well may be speaking to them about things like college and about all of those decisions that are out there. I mean, you have to do everything your kids say, but it says at some point you say, you know what, I recognize The Holy Spirit lives in you. I recognize you too can hear the voice of God and and we live under this one roof. And so let's figure out what it looks like for us to get on the same page together with what God is saying to us. We've got to be done. All right. Bo, you can come back up. Here's how we're going to close. I want to pray for you. If you're a parent, you're struggling a little bit maybe. You don't know. If there's tension in your home, maybe you're exasperating your kids. Maybe you're crushing them. Please let us pray for you. If you come forward, people are not going to say, oh, poor so-and-so. They are terrible parents. (laughs) We're all terrible. None of us know what we're doing. Just come forward and let us pray with you. There's no shame in that at all. Please let us pray with you if you're wrestling in your home as mom and dad. If you're someone here, I I wish I could remember the stats, and I can't. I feel like it was three years ago there were eight couples who wanted to be pregnant, and they couldn't, and every one of them has a baby up the street. Like, it's not not magic for us. It's just praying. If you're in here today and you're thinking, man, I want to have a baby by next Mother's Day, let us pray with you. If you're not married yet, we've got to take care of that first. But for those, and we'll pray for you about that too. Come on.
But if you are already married and you're, you're struggling with fertility, please let us pray with you. And if you wrestle this, that's, I don't, that's foreign for me. I don't know that that's true. Please let us pray with you about that. If you're afraid that, that this whole concept of hearing God is going to make you weird or something, it's not. You're either weird or you're not. And it has nothing to do with whether you hear the Lord. It's you. It's not him. And so you just come and let us pray with you. That God will give you, he, you are, he's already speaking to you. And he's, and he's speaking to you in a way that you understand, in a way that you get. We just got to make sure that you're tuning in to him. And that's all we're going to pray is that God would give you ears to hear what he's saying to you. And you don't have to be nervous about that. He's a good father. He's going to lead you into the best plans and purposes for your life. Some people are so nervous once they submit to the Lord in that way and say, I'm going to listen, that he's going to make you move to Africa and marry an ugly woman. He's not going to do that. He's not. He only has good things for you. So we're going to have ministry teams come forward. I'm going to pray, and then you're going to respond. You're going to respond. This is a great opportunity for you to listen to the Lord and to respond to what he's saying. So Holy Spirit, come. We've got a lot of things that we've talked about, and I pray that you would make application into the hearts of everyone into the room, our students and our adults, that we would all hear what you're saying to us and that we would respond in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand.